To the podcast of power, a She-Ra and the Princesses of Power companion podcast. I am one of your hosts, Nero. And I'm the other host, Jane. Let me just get this in the mic, folks. We did it. We're finished. We did it. I'm pouring myself we've, a, a we've nice... We've made our way through five entire seasons of television. That's right. I have poured myself a nice little glass of Diplomatico rum to celebrate... Uh, and we are here to sort of wrap things up uh, at the end of everything. At the end of everything, that's right. We've got uh, we've got a a platter of of wonderful emails here, and 
we're just gonna we're just gonna have a fun time talking about the show and just kind of going through all your fun questions and just sort of winding things down you know Yes, before we get to those, though, I think I would like to start with just a broader discussion about the show in general. I am curious to where you ended up on it and where I ended up on it at the end of all of this. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. So just just sort of like broad feelings on this like fifth, sixth, seventh rewatch of ours. Yeah, I feel like I'm pretty familiar with She-Ra at this point. And, and you know, after this podcast, I am... Uh, one could say that I am an expert. We are both bona fide experts on this on this little show. Uh, scholarly and and trained in the in the annals of of Shira, the princesses of power. Yes, and so I think you know a lot of times if you are going to critically examine something uh, that you like, I think I said this uh, in our finale episode. People are kind of afraid to do that. Because they're afraid to look at the the meaty bits moving inside of their favorite thing. Uh, they're afraid it's true. that it might spoil something about it. It might uh, it might like get rid of the magic somehow. And I just don't think that's true at all. I think looking uh, opening things up and looking into the innards and seeing how it all interconnects and works together uh, brings a deeper appreciation of any work. Yeah, I think so too. I think like. Um... I think this this whole experience actually has has really like broadened my like ability to appreciate and enjoy the show actually like uh I, I wouldn't say that like I like it's not like I wasn't looking at it like analytically beforehand but spending like 45 minutes to two hours every week or so talking about like the intricacies of every episode of the show it really like puts you in the kind of mindset where you're really examining like all of the choices that have been made both like diegetically by the characters and also by the people like making the show and and it's interesting it, it really brings this like un, like this extra layer of appreciation for all these like little things that that sort of come together to uh to to make the 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 thing whole yeah and you know this is kids media we're not exactly delving into the densest of text but i think it is always important to approach anything you you decide to watch with, with this sort of lens uh especially something that you have a deep appreciation for um like there's a lot that goes into a show like this as we as we learned uh when we read that illustrated memoir, there's a lot more of its creator that goes into the show than maybe even they consciously realized. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think that's that's like a big part of it too. It's like I think when you when you take a, the time to to really break down a work in this way, you also you you gain I think a little bit more of an understanding and appreciation for that back end element of it, right? Because like when you're actually watching the show and you're like fairly immersed in it, um, you're really only examining the, like diegetic details, but it's the stuff that is sort of behind that decision making that I think sometimes makes some of the most interesting things to think about, right? Like if you didn't take the time to examine sort of the the under the hood elements, you know, you wouldn't get that understanding of like why the characters are the way they are, you know, why 
uh, a lot of these things happen, what the, what, you know, the choices behind the choices are and, and why those were made. And I think that's, that's where a lot of like really cool stuff kind of, kind of sits because I know for me, especially, I guess, like I make things, I write stories. And when you have the, like, it, it gives, it gives you more tools to work with because you're, you're seeing sort of the imprint left behind of of tools that maybe you didn't even know existed and it's like you're you're sort of reverse engineering it for yourself it's like it's it's cool it's very fun yeah and you know of course any analysis like this will bring out flaws we've we talked about a fair bit of them over the course of this podcast Mermista's, oh yeah there's flaws the there's flaws being the butt of the joke very often uh launch in in sort of its entirety of launch um but i think remarkably this show held up very well to that kind of scrutiny yeah i think so too like surprisingly especially for like the i guess genre of show this is i'm not really sure how i would peg this specific genre actually i guess like act like teen action adventure like like sort of thing like like your avatars your steven universes etc etc like that that like track of of cartoon i think it's difficult to fit a lot of those into genres though because so many of them are very different like you know you can group let's say this adventure time gravity falls steven universe and avatar into the same group but each show has such a very distinct goal and a distinct mood that it doesn't like the the genre here is very broad uh, i i feel and 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 it really depends on uh what each show brings to the table that's true that's true it's it is it is hard to to put them all sort of in a broad category but uh but yeah it's like when when comparing it though to to sort of those you know what you might call contemporaries and like precursors I think that, like, on the whole, the show ends up definitely a tighter product. Like, I think it benefits a lot from the fact that uh, this is a show that was definitely run in a singular direction. Um, You'll find a lot of shows, they'll have, like, a slightly less tight narrative. Um, And that's typically because they have sort of a broad overarching path they're taking, but the, the details, the finer details and like even entire episodes are not really set in stone ahead of time. And I imagine that there's an element of that to the production of She-Ra here, but I'm not, I, I, I would be, I would be very surprised to hear that, um, that there wasn't like a a much more detailed sort of timeline uh, of of events. I mean, yeah, we have heard like I think this show sits somewhere between storyboard driven and and script driven. Those are kind of the that's kind of the the two kinds of, of animation uh, here in the West, where something like Gravity Falls. And, uh, and and Avatar are extremely uh, writers' room driven, whereas Adventure Time and Steven Universe, to their detriment or success, were extremely storyboard driven and, and kind of 
were much more freeform in how their arcs played out. I, I truly do not think uh, anything at the end of Adventure Time was actually planned, and, and it just kind of ended up there at, at the end. Yeah. Whereas I, I, I firmly do believe that, like, there was there was a big, thick Bible for Avatar and Gravity Falls, and people thought about where the story would go and what the mysteries would be. And I think she kind of occupies the middle bit, because we heard... Uh, a lot of the stuff on Twitter is talking like there were there were certain a- uh, animators and storyboarders and writers who were you know credited for for developing certain aspects and, and characters of the show. Uh, like there there was a there was a little faction that was really pushing for Scorfuma towards the end. I forget who it was, but there was this particular storyboarder who was credited with a lot of Entrapta's characterization. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think that the thing you get is that it feels as though Shira was fairly collaborative. Like, there's obviously a lot of Noel Stevenson in this show, but there's a lot of other pe- there's a lot of other forces at work too. I mean, looking at the storyboard credits at the beginning uh, of every episode, you can tell uh, names stand out and, and you know styles of faces and and, and the way Pete characters are drawn all sort of become signatures of a certain person i think you know kiki monique is a big uh, example of that yeah exactly exactly and i think like i i think that collaborative nature actually is is a really big strength uh for the show right because i think that like having it like i think it struck a really really good balance because you had that that strong writing presence that that sort of glued everything together but there was enough like room for collaboration that you got a lot of stuff that that sort of occurred over the course of the show that maybe otherwise wouldn't have right like things that just weren't really considered by like the main writing staff like you know scorfuma is a good example that's like something that probably wasn't really on the on the table when when the actual like bones of the story were being written but you know someone thought about it and thought that would work really well and they tried to kind of put that in and you know things like that i think it ended up being in uh, a really really good spot i think there's like really only like like uh we said like with launch there's there's only a couple of episodes that i think do they do fall apart um in and they have this feeling of like dissonant ideas for characters and the way they behave like like launches being helmed by someone the person who wrote for launch had a very different idea of what entrapter's characterization should be uh compared to the next time we see her in in season five yeah and like like we said another big mess up the coronation everyone is really annoying and it feels like everyone is just a bit out of character and so yeah there are when you have this push and pull and this big collaboration there are going to be episodes that sort of pop out like that i mean uh i've been listening to a lot of a more civilized age which is austin walker's like clone wars podcast and they talk a lot about like yeah that you can tell when someone is just kind of or we you know we got a writer who's not usually working on stuff or they're kind of phoning this one in or this was in a weird production order because that show is like a chronological nightmare when it comes to air versus production order. 
Um, oh god, I imagine. Like that show went through so much production hell. Yes, like they literally just talked about a season one production episode in the back, like in the middle of season two. So, you know, things got weird. But, like, the show is still really good. I mean, like we said, we've watched it, you know, together uh, additively probably at least 20 times. Yeah, easily. Like I think I think I've watched the show start to finish like I think this was my fifth viewing. Um Nero has probably has probably seen it like 15 times. I kept showing it to everyone and watching the whole thing with them. Uh, I think this is going to be my last viewing for a good while. I think I think I'm finally ready to put this one to bed after 8 or 9 separate full viewings of this entire show, roughly. Yeah, but what boy, what good viewings they were. They were. Um like they the were show. this it, this show ended up in in such a good place and I feel like it was it 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 was in such a interesting like way, I guess, like an interesting time for the show to appear. Like it it really came out of nowhere and it was definitely something that like I don't know. I definitely like heard about like oh they're rebooting Shira. That's like okay. Do, like do people care about that? Like I remember that being kind of my first initial thought. Like when I heard about it. Yeah, I mean, so much of the entertainment industry right now is just endless reboots and crossovers turning into one giant metaverse slurry hellhole. But yes. somehow this this is this in particular is like very transformative. I mean, as Noel said, they they were like, I want to make the Shira show I was writing fan fiction about when I was a kid. I want I want my vision of Shira to be real. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like it's kind of amazing because it's like like the property was in such a like perfect spot for this to happen because. Even when She-Ra was airing in, like, 1986, Hasbro, or I guess Mattel... Mattel, It was Mattel. Mattel, Yeah, Mattel didn't really care about the She-Ra property very much, even then. And now, I can't imagine, or at least prior to this show, I can't imagine that they cared at all about it. Like, they they cared even less. Either them or whoever owned the property. From what I understand, there is some really weird copyright stuff there's a reason that there was basically no shira merch and it's because i think either mattel or filmation still owns the rights to the actual characters and the names but the other one owns the merchandising rights or something like that i believe i think it might have been filmation that they licensed this from which is why there was no toy line or whatever. And, and and I think that's for the best. I think that this not being a toy-driven show as the original was allowed for way more wiggle room with terrible executives because I think they would be a lot less willing to give an inch with regards to all the gay stuff if there were toys on the shelves. That's a good point, actually. You know, I, I, I know that a lot of people were, like, pretty disappointed by the idea of there just not being really any merchandising. There's no, like, official, like, Shira figurines or anything like that. But I think that's a really good point, right? Like, if Mattel was in the driver's seat and, 
they were like, okay, well, we're trying to sell these things at Walmart, and we can't really have, you know, we can't really sell the the Catra and Adora like wedding pairing at Walmart <laughs> here. That's that's not gonna fly. Though, imagine if it did. That would be pretty fun. I'd buy it. Um, yeah, I mean, and you know, there's there's a bunch of fan merch that you can buy whenever you want. That is probably way better than whatever crap Mattel, uh, Mattel would shovel out onto the shelves. So, oh, for sure. As much as I would like a cool official, I think what I I don't want a Mattel figure. What I want is a Figma. I want a Figma, uh, but we're never gonna get that. Yeah. Well, hey, maybe someday, maybe somebody's gonna like. I don't know. I mean, I guess like if you had like a like a three D printer and like a bunch of stuff, you could probably make one. But like, yeah, but I'm lazy. Lazy and also that costs money. Yeah. So I unfortunately my my 3D printed ultra articulated hyper detailed Adora Figma uh, will simply remain a dream. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful dream. A beautiful wish. But uh, what yes. won't remain a beautiful wish is these emails being unanswered. I didn't really land that. But regardless, we have your emails. We did our best to remember which ones we had already answered and which ones we hadn't so yeah, we've, we've got we've got a nice healthy pile here of of email questions um stretching stretching all the way back to february in fact yes we were very bad at inbox upkeep so if we miss your question and we never actually answered it on the show we apologize but if this is of course basically the last episode um or we'll have you know a couple more things after this but this is the end of podcast of power prime yes it's it's uh it's a real bittersweet moment honestly just Mm -hmm. like the idea that this is this is the last episode of like the proper the proper thing is like you know should we pontificate about this project yeah you know let's let's do that briefly here before we get we get to there what are what are your thoughts on it i mean this all started when neither of us could shut the hell up about Shira, we both I finished <laughs> I finished season five first because as I as I have said, literally as soon as it dropped, I watched the entire thing in one night in one weekend with my friend, uh, and then I was like, "Wow, this is incredible." Um, and then you, I watched the final episode with you. We were like maybe we should make a podcast because we can't stop talking about it we li- we could not shut up about it it was like it was insane we just like kept we kept repeating like the same eight things over and over yes. again yes it was all about the final episode uh but pretty much we of course neither of us had done a podcast before i i consume many podcasts um but i don't know how to make any um and so we just said, well, why don't we just do it? And so we recorded that first episode. We dropped it out into the universe. I was still using like a, my headset mic because I didn't have an actual microphone yet. Oh, I was, God, I forgot about that. I was like two weeks away from moving. <laughs> it, like It was all just a nightmare um but But both of us moved over the course of this this podcast actually big changes happened over the course of this podcast but yeah we uh, we uploaded that first episode and i was like well you know i'm not expecting anything big i'm not expecting any like 
crazy stuff to go down. I think maybe we'll get a decent following. I mean, people are way into uh, way into this kind of kind of show right now, so maybe we'll get a like you know maybe a, a solid listener base of like thirty. Uh, maybe maybe if we're very lucky. Yeah. Right. But as of as of today, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there so there were a few spikes, of course. Uh, the small one was when I got Jack Nikita of, of Friends of the Table to promote it for Non-Binary Visibility Day, and then we went on that guest spot on the other the other podcast, and that is the thing that really exploded our listener base, and it just seems to have had a steady little bit of growth here. Uh, let me let me just brag here for a minute. Let me open up the Podbean and go back to our very first episode. Oh yeah, let's let's see what what is our first episode today on? Because right now in total, we we are you know as of as of today, you know August twenty third. It's the we're we're at thirty three thousand two hundred and ten downloads, fifty two episodes. That is literally the craziest thing it's wild um like that that like puts us in like the top like 10 percent of this whole website right yeah the thing about podcast metrics is that they're really weird because like there's a billion podcasts and if you get like a hundred regular listeners that puts you in the top 10 percent of like podcast performance uh, and then you know, obviously, the top one percent are the 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 big stuff like like WTF with Mark Maron and all that stuff. I don't know what podcasts are big with normies these days. I don't care to learn, but like we never expected this to get as popular as it did, and it was ba- it it was it was amazing and and baffling and wonderful. Every moment we saw watched that number go up. We did watch that number go up, and it was incredible like i i remember seeing like that number tick into four digits and i was like yes that was so i was so like over the moon about it I and was, now it's like now it's like oh we're just we're just sitting pretty at like yeah like five digit number here um it's wild what has happened uh, i would just like to extend a hearty thank you and to everyone who, who downloaded and listened along with us this far it's uh it's been a wild trip, and of course, the the people who donate to our Patreon, it's uh, astounding that we get paid by you generous folks to talk about cartoons on the internet. Yeah, right. Like that's another thing too is like opening the Patreon. Like I remember when we were first talking about that. Like it was like we were just getting started on like season three, I think, or something like that. Yeah. And we like neither of us had ever made anything like a patreon we didn't know what to do for it um like we just we just sort of threw a bunch of stuff out there and we're like yeah you know maybe we'll get like six dollars a month or something like that and now we've got you know we got so many people that it's like you know like it it takes two or three breaths to get through all the names we're saying and that's just for our three dollar patrons we got our we recorded like a, a little uh tabletop campaign because of our patreon stretch goal we are going to be able to continue recording podcasts on there in the interim while we prepare for our next big project and it is a big big project oh yes and that's yeah radio free Heidelin is going to be a really big deal uh it's that's going to be 
like this the scope of that project is definitely going to be a lot bigger than this one it's no, like there's there's going to be uh that's that's it's gonna it's very it's it's exciting and it's really scary also it's terrifying the logistics of it uh are sort of like a uh, like a like like a nightmarish cosmic horror i can't look directly at them or, or Pretty much. gouge my own eyes out uh, but yeah. we'll have to get there eventually. But yeah, this this kind of being the end point of this project, the podcast of power. You know, we've got our little Discord server for all of our patrons. I've I've gotten to know a few really nice people in there, sharing a few movies for them. I, I think I'll keep that going after we're done when I have some time. Like, oh, of course, it, it's been crazy. But uh, and I know that we have our our Patreon has has gone through trials and tribulations uh, at the hands of Adobe uh, software. But yeah, um, um, among other things, among other things. But uh, we we want to. Uh, with the, from the deepest uh, bits of our hearts, thank everyone uh, for continuing to listen and support us uh, throughout this entire thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much to everybody. You know, not just not just our patrons, not just our three dollar patrons and one dollar patrons. Everybody who's listened to the show, even if, even if this is the first time you've ever, you know, you just randomly somehow managed to find this in like a rss feed somewhere you know hello welcome i i hope that you know you're enjoying what you're listening to so far maybe you know check out the rest of it um i guess before we move on though i i, I do mm-hmm. want to take a minute because while we're reflecting on the show mm-hmm. um i think like something i definitely want to say is having done a whole podcast project having done this whole thing mm-hmm. um there's definitely like a lot of people who they they you know you you'll listen to this you'll listen to to your your favorite podcast and you'll be like yeah you know what i i want to make my own thing i want to i want to make like like my own analysis of a show i really love or, or something like that and that's awesome and you should absolutely do it but there there are definitely things that i feel like both of us have learned from this experience um and i think there's definitely like there's there's important things that you know if if you're gonna if you're gonna make your own podcast, uh, you know, just just definitely a few things, a few a few tips and tricks uh, from from the two of us here. I think. Did you have any? Because I'm kind of blanking on any right now. I I do mostly. It's just like, uh, one burnout's extremely real, yes. and it will hit you so astronomically hard you 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 have to pace yourself and um i I can tell you from from a lot of personal experience it like you you gotta just like try and it's super hard to but you gotta try to just like space out the work that you do um as much as you can like don't don't try and shotgun like editing episodes right i do that all the time and it does it doesn't work out super great so don't do that don't don't do that thing and and also try and have have an understanding of of like your own limitations and stuff like that and that's that's something that like that's also really important because because if you have a ton of ambition it's it's very easy to accidentally like overstep what you're actually capable of of 
you know, consistently doing. And I definitely think I, I, I am very guilty of that in, in this project in, in a lot of ways. You know, it was uh, eyes being bigger than your stomach. It, it, was, it was extremely, extremely was. It's the kind of thing like when we were opening up the Patreon originally, we had all these like really grand ideas for like all the things we would do. And like this, like crazy amount of content, like all this content and, and it were and you know, getting through it, you know, started, started pretty, pretty easy, but it started getting way more difficult. And then every, it's, it's the kind of thing where it's like, you gotta don't, I, my biggest piece of advice other than, you know, pace yourself is definitely like, well, I guess also just pace yourself, like pace yourself in the sense of like, do, do the work um don't don't shotgun the work and also like you know try to like take things one step at a time don't sort of over commit to a bunch of stuff without having a real understanding of exactly how much work it actually is to to put that level of stuff out it's also very useful to have a uh, schedule to keep in mind um it's very important to to especially if you're depending on how many hosts uh, your podcast has uh, scheduling becomes exponentially harder. We kept it simple with two, but I know that there are you know there are podcasts out there with like four or five people, which certainly helps in the editing department. That's for sure. You can offload that duty, uh, you know, person by person on a weekly basis. But it means that you got to schedule time zones, jobs, you know, general availability, emergencies, all of this kind of stuff. All those kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely just like, I don't know, I just felt like while we were talking about it, I, I wanted to just sort of, as as like, not like a word of warning or caution or anything, just like, you know, we're talking about the experience of doing a podcast. There's a lot of really good things about it, but there's some stuff that's like less great and there's stuff that's like unexpected, like like stuff that you run into. And I think that it's... I think it's important to talk about this kind of thing because I think a lot of people just don't because it's sort of an unspoken kind of thing in sort of creative industries like this. Like, you know, people who make like like videos or or really like any content, like podcast content, there's there's like an unspoken set of things you're just sort of expected to know going in. I think it's important to like when you have an opportunity to talk about it. You know, I I I'm I'm happy to and I like I would like to talk about it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember that uh, creation is not simply a thing that pops into being. It's blood, sweat, and tears. It's 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 hard work, uh, passion, uh, and putting it all in in there. You know. It is. It really is. Of course, that all being said, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't replace doing this with anything. It's mm-hmm. been, it's been an amazing experience. Like it's been like, I'm, I'm really deeply proud of a lot of the work that we've done. Pretty, I've, I'm deeply proud of all of the work that we've done. Like, I think there's, there's a lot of like really cool stuff that we've done, both in the terms of just like neat sort of sort of event style things like this this uh the all the email episodes and all of the like the tabletop stuff that's coming up shortly but like in addition just like we've i feel we've hit on a lot of like really cool points and we've done like a lot of really cool analysis and i'm like i don't know i'm just i'm really happy with with where this this landed i think i think this ended up being really really cool 
Yeah, I am also very proud of it. I can gesture at something and say, look, look at what we made. Look, I, I sometimes sound smart on it, and that's uh, not something you see every day. But uh, yeah, that is that is kind of our, our little thing here at the end, at the end of this podcast. And this Radio Free Heidelin thing is so daunting. There's so much more text. There's so much more material to chew through and talk about. And so many more notes to take. Oh goodness! There's uh, like the actual, the actual like thing of notes that we have on Shira is so long that it lags Google Docs. I don't even know how we're going to keep notes for Heidelin. That's going to be such an experience. Yeah, so I'm very excited to start that uh, come this winter uh, once Endwalker is out and over with. I. Uh, I am I am only more excited about that since I finished uh, the the main Shadowbringers expansion. I, I I was, you know, up until I started that, I was questioning re- whether or not there was enough meat uh, in a lot of that game to dig into. And now that I have finished Shadowbringers, I could definitely say yes, there absolutely is. Oh um, yes, yeah they they had a really good time with the end of five and it's it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Like. I uh, you I have to I have to underscore yes every everyone who plays Shadowbringers cannot shut the hell up about how good it is but literally all of the hype is true I do not say that lightly I don't say that about most things the hype around Shadowbringers is absolutely completely accurate it's it remarkable. really is it's it, it's kind of it's kind of incredible like Shadowbringers is like I, I've said many times that Final Fantasy XIV is both the worst game I've ever played and the best game I've ever played. And the second part of that statement is pretty much entirely due to 5.0 onwards. It is like, it is such a hard sell because there are so many ups and downs before that. There's so much. And I do think you have to, if you want to, if you are looking to enjoy the story of Shadowbringers and really emotionally connect with it, you do have to play the whole thing. You cannot just level skip to it and expect it to hit as hard. Shadowbringers is kind of this like it, it is a real. It is a story that could only really exist in the form of an ongoing game like that, and in, in, in a form that it, it it is constantly building and evolving and and like recontextualizing itself. Uh, in many ways it is sort of a living text right now like there's no telling what will happen next and you know it's 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 a very remarkable thing i i do think that it is more than worth it to to and you know saying that it's like it's not like i don't like the rest of the game uh, i think that there are really really good bits in the rest of it i am on record as a stormblood enjoyer and yeah, that, Storm, Stormblood is definitely uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty alright. There's definitely parts parts of it I quite like. I like Stormblood more than Heaven's Word. Ooh, I am. A, I don't know if I could say that. Mm. I, I am a I am a, a, a pariah among my peers. Uh, I, I simply think, you know, well, we 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 can't get into it right here, but Stormblood was given a, an unfair lot at the end i think uh that that i agree with that's true and i think that heaven's word is more fondly remembered because it is uh very often the first expansion that sticks into people's minds it is where a lot of people started for the first time um 
and not to say that it's not good. I like a good I like a good JRPG, but you know, this is all talk for uh the the sort of prelude episodes we're planning for Radio Free Heidelin, which of course, just to get a quick plug in and uh follow us over at uh, our Twitter over at Heidelin Radio. That is, of course, and you know, the, the spelling all will always get you. H Y D A E L Y N Radio. Yes, it's uh, it's a tough one to spell, but yes, that's that's our, that's our plug for that. That's coming up in the near future, so you know, be be on the lookout for those sort of prelude episodes. In the meantime, though, we've got all of those delicious email questions we're we're 40 minutes into this recording and we have not answered a single question so we gotta start chewing through these emails we got we yeah we gotta start chewing through these so we're we're starting at we're, we're gonna do this in chronological order we got we got a question from february 25th good god from crystal germ and uh and they say hey nero and jane recently started uh recently. listening to your pod recently started listening to your podcast Ooh, this that was a while ago uh i love it so much especially the breakdowns and the spoiler zone i haven't heard you talk about it before so sorry if i already covered this but would you be able to talk about the power imbalance that is created when glimmer becomes queen even from the start adora is usually the one coming up with the plans and being the leader in battle she grew up a soldier so it makes sense everyone seems okay with this they're happy to fight by shira's side the best friend squad all treat each other as equals for the most part, but when Glimmer becomes queen, it starts to annoy her more and more that Adora is taking charge. I know this is uh, in part due to Adora's coddling and DT's meddling, but do you think there are any other factors to it? Uh, let's see. I do think that there's definitely a power vacuum. Like, it's like maybe not a vacuum, but more like a a weird shift in the power dynamic because not only and it's not only on you know the 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 uh, the rebellion side either Katra basically being in charge of the horde is another is another huge shift in season 4 and and they have uh, as we discussed in those episodes Glimmer and Katra have uh, go through extremely similar struggles they uh, basically lose all of their friends uh, through their own actions and end up completely alone this is true. It's the 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 parallels are quite strong. I the thing with like the sort of power shift that ends up happening is like they 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 are like lateral shifts for the most part. Um, but I feel like the dynamic on the alliance side uh, is it is a bit different than how it sort of works out in the horde because the horde is like sort of inherently competitive. Uh, Catra, in a lot of ways, is like climbing the the corporate ladder, as it were. She is sort of girl bossing her way up. Um, but when it comes to the alliance dynamic, that sort of competitiveness wasn't really ever part of the program. You know, sort of Angela was the like the the chain which held up the chandelier i guess you could say and uh without that you know there's not a lot keeping everything up in the air so once you know glimmer largely took on the role of like 
like she was a commander, but in large part she was more of a front line kind of like uh like unit leader. She versus... likes to mix it up. She likes to get dirty with it. She likes to get dirty with it. She's like she's like the the like fire emblem leader, right? Yeah, she's, she's like, like a the fire, fire emblem character. Yeah, she's a fire emblem lord. She is going to be at the front lines. Her stats are incredible. Um you know, I, I, while you were talking, I was I was uh, workshopping a post in my head, and can I just uh, I'll share it with you now. Uh, DT is gaslight, uh, Glimmer is gatekeep, and Catra is girl boss. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is true. It's unquestionably true. That's 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 the post right there. And that's what season four is about. That is what season four is about. But yeah, like like Glimmer is basically the the Fire Emblem Lord, uh, the frontline commander, a commander really more in the the tactical sense than the strategic sense. Adora is usually strategic leader. She's also in the battle, but she's not really the one who's like doing a lot of like on the ground like you know, point go over here kind of stuff. She's more worrying about just hitting things with a big sword. Um, so suddenly when Glimmer gets put into the position where she has to be sort of reviewing and making decisions on the strategic level, there's this big conflict of interest. There's this huge... Um, sort of headbutting that happens between Adora and Glimmer because suddenly um, Adora being the one who takes charge of the strategic side of things is like actively undermining Glimmer's new position and like this is a situation that could have been solved but because both of them are kind of big-headed and stubborn and not really especially willing to back down from when you know they think that they're the correct one it sort of exploded into the worst imaginable thing possible yeah like and you know obviously Bo was attempting to be the mediator but eventually (laughs) he did his best even he cannot like repair this wedge uh, especially when glimmer's behavior became too egregious even for him uh, towards the end of the season like they the uh his his dedication to his friends and his sense of like duty and compassion towards entrapta uh were unable to be reconciled like he had to make a stand for his beliefs and he had to go against glimmer's direct orders as queen to do it um it's like you know sometimes friend dynamics change and like people drift apart and sometimes you know they they the power dynamic shift is is very much like we're not like it is it is almost a coming of age thing it's like well we're not kids anymore we all have different things we have to do we're all growing into our our the, the people we will become with all of the pain that involves and so that drove wedges between all of them that ultimately were healed uh, by the end of season five that's true and that's actually a really good thing to bring up too because in a lot of ways there there are a lot of things in this show that are kind of a coming in uh, of age story right like we obviously we get a lot of sort of flashbacks to when they're actual children but for the most part the like chronology of the show sort of takes these characters from when they're like 
young adults, like, you know, like 18 to like 22 year olds to like pass the threshold, right, of like, you are now an adult, you are a capital A adult, you are, you are, the young moniker isn't really applicable anymore. You, you've sort of matured past that point either through circumstance or through just sort of time or both usually both in the case of of this show so so yeah there's there's definitely like there's a hard sort of transition uh between those two states and that's like you know angela's death and you know the start of you know, season four, like the coronation is like, that's like the, the sort of like hard line where there's that definite, like very visible sort of time skip style thing, uh, where you get that like a very clear delineation between the two times. Um, but it is something that had sort of been going on over the course of the whole show, just a little bit slower. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about how it represents the passage of time and this kind of age thing through uh, character design changes and whatnot, but uh, we don't have all night, and we got more emails to go through, including more bits of this one. Yes, we do. In fact, two more bits. Uh, The next part is in Hero, when we see Raz going back and forth between the past and the present, we see her tell Mara that the sword is not She-Ra. She is She-Ra. It's a shame she never tells Adora this. I feel like it could have saved some time and grief. I believe Adora doesn't start to realize this until Stranded when she's holding up the cavern from falling down. That, <laughs> that's true. It would, have, it would have saved her a little bit of time and, uh, and energy what, there, I think. I don't know if it would have because, you know, she learns that in Stranded, but it doesn't really help anything. Like, if anything, the knowledge that, you know, the sword is not She-Ra, she is She-Ra, only increases the 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 weight she feels on her shoulders that is crushing her into the ground it it almost feels like there's even more responsibility now than there was before she destroyed the sword yeah and i mean that's true that's true um but i think like you know back like during hero you know back in season four right like hearing that the sword isn't shira that she is shira i think that like at that time would actually have been kind of beneficial to her because that was like prior to her like rescinding her um her sort of uh acceptance of the duty that was placed on her by light hope right like she was still beholden to that so if you know you know as far as she was concerned when she broke the sword that was it she was gone forever right like that's that that was sort of her thing and it was like a very like difficult thing to do i think that had she known that that was an option like and that she still would retain like her shira abilities like she would still have that connection she probably would just broken the sword ahead of time yeah i guess but you know with questions like these it's always like well if you do that then the story doesn't happen yeah that's sort of the problem right it's like if you take, you know, you, we wouldn't have gotten the uh, the cool sort of sort of sword breaking moment at that point. So you know. Oh, yeah. uh, and then the third part here. 
Did the Horde inadvertently stop the Heart of Etheria being activated? By taking over the Black Garnet and Scorpion not having a connection, the planet wasn't balanced. Nearly as soon as she connects to her runestone, Light Hope is able to activate the heart. If Scorpion had connected it sooner, or been connected all along, could Light Hope have just activated the heart as soon as Adora became She-Ra? Now when you think about it, Shadow Weaver really is the greatest hero of this show. (laughs) You know what? I, I, I guess you can't argue with that. Like, she accidentally did something really good for like ten years. No, she she completely on accident stopped Light Hope from being well. Okay, Light Hope wouldn't have been able to activate the Heart of Etheria without the Watchtower and the rest of her like network being online. I guess that's true. I guess that's true. But that <laughs> but was still the that would just. <laughs> That would just mean as soon as the Watchtower episode happened, the world ends. Yep, that would be pretty funny. But yeah, like yeah, the Horde accidentally stopped the giant super weapon from being able to be activated uh, for a while. So thanks, Horde Act. Thanks, Shadow Weaver, I guess. Yeah, I guess, you know, at least a little bit of good came out of that. I guess, you know, yep. you, you get one clap. One singular clap. Just one. All right, and that's going to do it for this first one. Thank you very much, Crystal Germ. All right, so next one. It's uh, Elsie Collins. Uh, Do you think while on the Velvet Glove, Glimmer and Catcher had some sort of relationship? And if so, what do you think Horde Prime would think of it because he, you know, sees all? I mean, I feel like we talked about this in another question. I think he would definitely just view it as another vector through which he could manipulate them. I think so, too. I think he would... I think... It would be the kind of thing where it's like he he very clearly has like a um a, a really heavy distaste for affection of any kind. He he really hates like emotionality and and that sort of thing. So I think he would be like mild like at least mildly disgusted by it, but I think it would be the kind of thing where he would use it as leverage. Like he would definitely use it to sort of pull on their strings and, and get them to, to do what, what he wants them to do and, and make them behave in the way he wants them to behave. Yeah, as for whether or not it happened, you listen, you know, you know my proclivities. I think maybe something could have happened. I don't know for sure. Yeah, I think it could have. I mean, Glitra is, Glitra is definitely a very... It's volatile. It's a volatile and conditional ship. It is the kind of ship where, like, so many puzzle pieces would have to come together for that to happen. But the there is definitely some level of chemistry there. At, at the very least, there is definitely some attraction there. So, like, it could could it could it work out? Could there be a thing that happened there? I I don't know. It's, Who could say? I mean, there there's a reason. There is a reason. Why Glimcatcher Dora is a very popular thruple. It's powerful. It it's is. It's very powerful. So I'll take this one from Kayla here, uh, who attaches uh, an image, uh, like a screenshot from a timeline post, and wonders what we think of it in regards to the theory it posits. So let me just uh, describe it best I can. So the basic thrust behind this is so let me read the first bit here. Uh, Rad's theory. Let me just list some things we know about Madame Raz. 
acts motherly towards Mara and Adora, knows some weak magic, was a thousand years old years ago, so she's seemingly immortal, lives in a world that is constantly, uncontrollably changing around her, has pink skin, knew exactly how to stop the portal, then willingly went into its like, just like someone we know, calling it now Raz's Angela, and then we have some screen grabs of the similarities between one of Raz's earrings and Angela's earrings. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is this is a pretty wild one. This is pretty out there. It's out there. It 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 has more legs to stand on than some that I've seen. That's true. I like it's it's one of those things that's like it's like this definitely definitely isn't true. However, it's very I'd, fun to think about. It's pretty fun to think about. You could totally write something with this as like the premise of it. I, I feel like I I would read that. I would read that. That's that'd probably be a pretty interesting fic, actually. I mean, Raz is such a bizarre character with so many unanswered questions surrounding her that she's the perfect like vector for any wild theories that people want to posit. This is a fun one, though. I like this. Yeah, right? Because, like, Raz, you could basically invent an entire, like, theory of, like, chronology around Raz. You could, like, it's not like they explain, like, basically anything that's going on with her, like, unstuckness in time. So, like, I mean, you could just go crazy. You could you could make it whatever you want. Like, it, it could be the portal. It could be she has time powers. I mean, anything. It's, like, so... So yeah, I mean, this is really as likely as as anything else is to explain Madame Raz. Yeah. Uh, what about the next one here? Yeah, next one. Yeah, cool, cool theory though. I do, I do really like that. Thank you. Um, uh, next one here from Karen, and and they say, "Hi, Neuron Jane. I hope you're doing well. Well, we hope you're doing well too." I've been listening to your podcast for a couple months now and fell absolutely in love with it. Uh, I adore your thoughtful questions, and it simply reinforces the love I have for the show. Uh, I've officially caught up and excited to let some of my burning questions out. Uh, okay, well, they we're... caught up at around April 24th. That was what, mid, like late season four? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a while ago. Um, mid to late season four. Something like that. Um, in both Promise and Corridors, we see memories directly interact with Catra and influence her choices regarding Adora. In one, baby Catra just looks uh, at, at, you know, regular Catra, and the oh, other Catra. baby Adora looks at Catra instead. Um, what prominent role do you think these memories specifically play on her character, especially with who ends up breaking the fourth wall, um, so to say, and interacting with Catra? We talked about uh, about this a little bit in the episodes those came up in. I mean, obviously, we talked about how the, the, the implications of the first one's uh, nightmare machine, basically. kind their, of Their horrible, evil, memory-sucking device. Yeah, directly interacting with Catra there. And I, I think we, we, we at some point talked about how that could have been a, like, purposeful move by Light Hope to drive Catra further away from Adora. I still think that's totally what happened. Uh, the second one, though, the the thing about the second one is that there was no first one's machinery involved in that at all. That was all Catra's subconscious, um, and you know, it the, the 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 two moments are mirrors of each other. In the first one, seeing her younger self in this moment of extreme vulnerability, and you know, just looking up at her. That that 
that entire scene still sticks with me so much because of the it, it's just completely silent for like three seconds there's no dialogue no music like it, it is just pure silence as Katra looks at herself from the past and that is yeah. the thing that uh re like just just is the final nail in the coffin of she is going to uh abandon Adora and forge her own path she feels betrayed uh she feels like uh, their friendship has been nothing but uh, a a a, pro- a promise broken a dozen times the exactly. second one on the other hand happens of course on the velvet glove uh during launch i believe and or no it's excuse me it's during corridors duh of course it's during corridors <laughs> the best one of the best episodes of the show and uh that is the moment when katra decides to save glimmer and do something good with her life for once in her own words and uh sacrifice herself to save both glimmer and stop adora from running right into prime's clutches and i think that obviously that period in particular is like extremely formative for both of them and their friendship and their relationship and that promise what what is, is baby dora says like i'll always be the I'll, I'll i'll always protect you or something or i'll always be friends with you or something um and that entire episode is dealing with katra refusing to ever apologize to anyone uh to take any responsibility for her action she's she, even for you know even back then she's always shoving the blame off on other people and what i really uh what sticks about that one is that during that entire scene little adora has the claw marks across her face from where katra had scratched her earlier that day um just like a sort of visual reminder of the 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 pain catcher has caused her directly and indirectly and i think this this scarred visage of an innocent young adora looking her directly in the eye and saying that she would always be there for her is the thing that kind of causes her to turn around on that stance to start thinking about you know she was she really ever blameless all of the people she's hurt over the years glimmer adora like scorpia um, the guilt kind of compounded and, and, and like manifested in this singular vision that spurred her to do the right thing. Exactly, exactly. It's, uh, there's such good moments. They really are. I think that it's like, the, these specific interactions are so critical to Katra as a character and how she like develops over time. They're, they're, definitely some some of my personal favorite moments in the whole show yes uh and, you know i think the karen finishes that little thought with i just think it's so interesting how some of her biggest choices in the show had a big per- push from certain past memories all with adora yeah yeah extremely it's it's you know it is it's it sure is interesting huh <laughs> it sure is interesting i wonder if that means anything probably not yeah i'm sure it doesn't mean anything um also uh they add a fun little detail but i love the inclusion of the theme from promise when catra is saving glimmer and apologizing to adora small details like these especially with the music just make me want to scream a good scream that that's 
That's pretty cool, actually. The usage of the promise leitmotif is so good. Um, whenever it pops up, you know some ultra-dramatic Catradora shit is going on right then. Like, Oh, yeah. It's, I believe it plays, you know, of course it plays during promise. I believe it plays uh, when she, uh, like, gives herself up to the portal. Um... Uh, it, of course, plays during that moment when she rescues Glimmer. Uh, and, 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 of course, the final time that lay, that particular leitmotif plays is during the big love confession scene. Oh, yes. That's that's really the big one. Oh, my God. Uh, that one always gets me so when bad. It is uh, the first time it plays is Catra looming over Adora um, over over the edge of a cliff looking down on her. And, and uh, knocking her over the edge, leaving her. And the last time it plays is, uh, you know, desperately reaching out to try and drag her back from the edge of that abyss. Just something to think about, I guess. Just, just something to think about. You know, we have these two characters constantly cliffhanging on cliffs, near cliffs, standing by cliffs. And then finally, in the, la- the very last time that whole thing gets called back, they- Catra is pulling adora back up the cliff you know maybe it's symbolizing like i don't know this constant refrain of the two of them feeling like they have to let each other go they you know decide no they're gonna defy that and they're going to they're going to uh both be on the top of the cliff and not and not fall off of it and not abandon each other the end point of that being, you know, the, the all of that cliff stuff was in Adora's mind as the virus coursed through her system. But uh, the, from Catra's perspective, she was cradling Adora the entire time, begging her to stay. And that is what Adora woke up to was the closest they had ever been, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what, a, sure. what a scene. Um, Show's pretty good. Show's pretty good. All right, thank you very much, Karen. So next one is uh, Turner says, uh, let me preface this by saying I love your podcast. Uh, it's a great way to relive the show and pick up on things I've missed even after a couple watchers. Well, thank you. We're, we're happy to do it. Um, what are your My thoughts? My brain is oh, full of she and I can't stop. You just can't stop. This is, this is actually really, really interesting. Okay, what are your thoughts on what the criminal justice system on Ethereum yes. will look like after the war. We've Let's seen the go. Horde's methods. Uh, Hordak makes decisions. People get solitary imprisonment or exile. And we've seen the Rebellion's methods. Uh, the Queen makes decisions, and people get house arrest or unconditional forgiveness. But we also see both of those methods get critiqued in-universe by sympathetic characters. We can safely assume that the Horde's penal system isn't going to exist after the series ends. But by the same token, Glimmer can't personally decide the fate of each and every Horde officer after the war. And I mean, um, all those damn clones. All like, those what, damn clones. What could you possibly do uh, with all these clones? I think about this occasionally in the context of questions like what happens to Catra slash Hordak slash the Horde cadets, etc. after the war. How do they make it to amends? who determines what shape those amends take. And I think this is a fascinating question because, yeah, I mean, obviously the Horde has that gigantic prison uh, thing 
just that that huge multi-level jail with the the laser doors and whatnot. Oh yeah, they're they're literal actual Panopticon. And Though the rebellion it's probably a... destroyed now, actually. Oh yeah, it's a, and it's then it's also covered destroyed. in flowers. Yeah, the entire fright zone has been destroyed and covered in flowers. So even if anyone wanted to use that facility, they couldn't. The rebellion, meanwhile, has a uh, a spare room. Well, okay, hold on. They have like three spare rooms, okay? Yes, and they're all In very varying level furnished. varying levels of niceness, okay? There's a there's one that doesn't have any furniture in it. So that one's I pretty think- bad. Yes, and Turner ends with so what does it look like? What does justice look like in a world simultaneously split by decades of war, yet safe for the viewing pleasures of eight year old children? I have an answer to this is I saw a piece of art a while ago. Like pretty soon after season five premiered. Oh. And it was like it was Hordak, Catra, and a bunch of the Horde cadets going on beast island cleanup duty they were like it was they were like getting rid of beast island and and, you know getting rid of all the corruption that had been growing there for thousands of years and i think that yeah obviously you can't hold massive tribunals in a in a show for eight-year-olds and i feel like the atonement uh specifically especially hordak uh would need to do is very material it is very like you literally need to be out there rebuilding the planet you have been scorching for the last 20 years with your own two hands yeah i think i think that makes a lot of sense right you'd have sort of a community service sort of lean to it where you would put I, I think there would definitely be some like there there would be a tribunal of some description. There would be like oh yeah, there'd be there'd be a trial of Hordak, but I don't think it would end with him being like speared like Gold Roger or whatever. No, um, certainly not. I don't I don't think there's going to be summary execution of Hordak, uh, but I do think definitely uh, the like the actual like Horde military like that. Like, all of that stuff, probably there's a lot of, like, rebuilding services that they would be doing. Like, com- like community service-style stuff. It would probably be like that. I can't imagine there would be a lot of, like, actual, like, you're-going-to-jail-kid-style no. stuff. But, like, I also don't think they would be getting off scot-free either. And yeah, as far listen. as... We we are I think we are both for for abolition here prison abolition. I don't think Ethereum needs a penal system. No, I don't They're think fine. so either. Yeah, we, we just listen. We don't we don't need none of that. We don't need no prisons. Just just don't worry about that part. But definitely there is there is like a system that they would have to they would have to figure out in such a way as that all of these 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 people are given like ways to to benefit their communities like i mean listen after after the end of the show let me tell you what there's some stuff to rebuild because between between the the horde offensive immediately before the bigger horde invasion all the freaking like giant spires that are all broken down everywhere the big holes that horde prime drilled in the planet the like uh, the big battlefields and then also Shira covering everything in a nice layer of plants there's probably yeah. a lot of stuff to do 
And yeah, I think that yeah, like the Hordak and and his ilk would have to be the ones on the front lines of that. And I think like we said uh when we were talking about Hordak's arc, it would be up to the people to decide whenever they ever forgave him if they did at all. Like ultimately I don't think that's something he is interested in. I don't think it's something he needs as an arc. I think it is more about like affecting positive change and building meaningful relationships with the people who do care about him, like in Trapta. Exactly, exactly. I think that's I think that's a big thing too. Um I mean a character like Hordak, I I don't feel like in a realistic sense that most no. people are ever going to exactly be friendly with the guy. Like at best they'll like begrudgingly though they will begrudgingly be cordial with him. But like yeah, I don't really see him being like getting parades thrown in his honor oh, or nothing no. like that. Absolutely not. Yeah, I think that is kind of where I see the kind of posters. I would I would read a comic about that, you know, I'd read a comic about that and and all that sort of stuff. It'd be pretty good. I read a comic about lots of things in the show. Yeah, there are so many things that you could make a comic about for this show, or maybe like some kind of movie. Who knows? Who knows? Oh boy, we got a long one. A long one up next. Why don't you take this one from uh, from Felix? Uh, yeah. Ooh, this is a long one uh, from Felix. So. So they say, yeah, they were they were a little behind at the time they sent this, which was July 18th. So actually not that long ago, but um, yeah, let's see. So uh, the first bit here is hair. Uh, I believe the showrunners use hair as an ongoing motif for character development in the show. It's probably easiest to go character by character, but the overarching theme seems to center on one's sense of control. Uh, for Adora, uh, and we'll just we'll we'll go through this like like point by point, I guess, because because it's actually kind of a long, kind of a long question. Um, for Adora, um, they say I think it's been said that Adora could be classified as having OCD. At the very least, she is constantly grappling with the intense pathological desire to be in control because she mm-hmm. believes it's her duty to do so. I think this is why she has such a neat uh, tight ponytail. It's only in pretty dire moments when Adora is being pushed to her limits that there are even loose strands. Her ponytail seems to coincide with her sense of duty and responsibility as related to her idea of having a destiny. Uh, Indeed, it's not until season four that we even see Adora's ponytail loose. Uh, The moment she rejects the destiny, Light Hope and the First Ones have chosen for her. Next time is in Save the Cat, when Adora risks everything, including her responsibility to Etheria, in order to save someone she loves even if she hasn't realized it yet. Uh, I love the fact that in the fight scenes with Katra, her hair becomes looser and more wild as she fights, as she becomes increasingly emotionally disturbed by Katra's experience and takes bigger and bigger risks to try and save her. Uh, in the heart part one, Adora is seen carefully pulling her hair into a ponytail after staring down the failsafe, uh, showing her over- overwhelming sense of duty overpowering everything else. And then the final time that she loses her ponytail is in part two, during the kiss, showing her really truly letting go of her notions of destiny. That, that's that's interesting. Yeah, like, obviously the hair is you know often used as as an indicator for for character arcs right like the 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 emotionally important haircut is a is a thing with a long history and you know hair is great for that because it is really 
kind of our most malleable outward trait, right? It grows fast. You can do a lot of things with it. And like there, there are lots of the emotionally important haircuts and hairstyles in this, uh, in this show alone. And yeah, I think all of this is completely spot on. Um, the, 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 during the kiss, the ponytail completely unfurling is a really good observation. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It's like, Hair is a really good visual shorthand you can use. Um, there's a lot of visual shorthand in this show. Um, and we've talked about a lot of it before with, uh, with masks, with um, uh, various articles of clothing as they change over time. Um, and hair we really haven't touched on. But this is definitely a really good point. I, I do think definitely uh, ador- the way that Adora's uh, hair is styled and the way that you know most characters hair is styled really impacts their sort of emotional state like we've talked before about katra and like for example her baby tufts and the the obsessive smoothing of the hair after outbursts to sort of get back into into character in season four um exactly is a a tick she often had and then and then of course the the uh the the close shave she gets from Horde Prime is a is a like it's a it's a it's a representation of her complete loss of control. She would never choose that style for herself. It, it is something forced upon her by Prime, and when she is returned to her senses in the next episode, she cuts it even shorter and and really kind of wilds it up. Right, like her her season five haircut is very is very close cropped uh it is her sort of taking control back from that look that was forced on her she's like i don't want this hair but if i, I can't exactly you know grow it out so i am going to wear it how i want to exactly exactly that's a really really good point um as 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 far as uh, as far as Adora is concerned, I definitely think that a lot of it is this like very like controlling nature that she has over her own self. I think that like I think I think there's an important distinction in that I think Adora has a it definitely has an extreme desire to be in control of of things, but I think there's an important distinction to be made that in a lot of ways her desire to control is really inwardly focused because she does have a need to control things on sort of like a strategic like level of things, which, you know, we've talked about before, but most of that is, is really inward and is, is like her, like constantly trying to control her own emotions and her own reactions to things and stuff like that. And, and this actually comes into play in sort of the second part of this here where they say, conversely, She-Ra is shown to have wild flowing hair. I think at first this shows Adora's loss of control. The very first time she becomes She-Ra, uh, I got the sense that she kind of lost herself, uh, which makes sense given that this version of She-Ra is the one controlled by the sword. Uh, side note, uh, they say they've got a theory that the corruption disc that gave us drunk Adora was remnants of the first one's failed attempts to take control of She-Ra before they made the sword. I would not be surprised. That actually, that that seems to track. I think we talked about that, yeah, like... Yeah, like, we, we talked about that briefly during the Snow episodes, I think, where we were, like, kind of spitballing the idea that maybe the, the virus was made 
to control Shira or like as a fail safe if Shira ever went out of control or something. Um, yeah. Uh, but they continue uh, over the most of the series. Shira's hair settles and only becomes wild, flowy, and glowy in moments when Adora is able to let go so she can tap into her inner power or her true self. Uh, I think the fact that season five Shira's hair is in both a ponytail but still flowing and a little wild shows that she has begun to integrate her sense of self into her identity as someone powerful rather than the instrument of others' lust for power. I think that's true, but I think that it also is important to note that uh, season five Shira. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure the first time she appears, uh, when, when, during Save the Cat, I don't believe she has the ponytail. No, she does. She does? Okay. Yeah. Um, because I was gonna say, I, I feel like the, the, the ponytail as a representation of Adora's, like, sense of control, I think... That does flow over a little bit into season five, Shira, because you know she's trying really hard to rein in uh, Shira and like kind of be in total control over her powers. Um, and of course, the more she tries to do that, the less stable it becomes. Yeah um it's it's uh yeah the the i think th- there was that joke uh natasa cracks about uh dora having extreme hair envy with shira but i think maybe what she's really envious of is uh the the sort of freedom uh that shira represents as a being of pure magic i think that is definitely definitely true um and then one last little point about hair uh they point out for uh horde prime and uh and hordax hair um, pretty obviously, Horde Prime's hair is so unhair-like, it's sickening. It's not hair, it's weird. It's tubes. Te- it's techno-tendrils. He's got, like, r- bizarre, like, injector dreadlocks that are also in a man bun. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, I didn't notice them. He does kind of have a man bun a little bit. He has bit. a man bun. So uh-huh. <laughs> there's there's a lo- there's too much going on for us to even begin to figure out what is what that means. Yeah, um, but uh, Hordak and Wrong Hordak have spiky little mohawks to distinguish them from the other clones. I would go deeper, but I think it's become self-explanatory at this point. I'd love to hear your take. Basically, in summation, flowing hair equals individuality and choice in this show. I think definitely that like baseline symbology definitely exists i think definitely that is like a a visual through line to follow um i think i think that's a very i think that's a very very concrete like analysis i think that's definitely like a good way to look at it yes and yeah i think we talked about how the the sort yeah is the the uh wrong hordak his hair getting progressively wilder is is a pretty clear visual metaphor for him breaking away from the rest of the galactic horde and, and growing into his own person yeah hordak uh, proper has the same thing happen to him as well yes um i think there is all i mean i guess i don't really know what to talk about with entrapta here that's more of uh, the hair is an extension of the self sort of thing it, it is the way she interacts with the world chiefly um 
But I mean, we we can't sit here talking about hair all day. We also have to talk about another uh, metaphorical and image image aspect I quite like: uh, colors. Yes, yes, there is quite a lot here. So this section is entitled Catra's Eyes. Um, I don't know if I'll have time to do what I want to do with this one because I realize you're not up to episode eight. Uh, I guess that's where we... Yeah, I guess that's that's where where we were. Um, Episode eight, that's... That was a while ago. Um, Which one is that? That's is that the Far Cry episode? I think that I think might be the Far Cry, Cry episode. Yeah. No, that's Critus. That's Critus. Right. That's Critus. Yeah. The color themes in the show are immense. That's definitely true. And they also linked to this really interesting like website. Yes. Actually, I, which... I have been. Uh, I scrolled through the the color uh, analysis ones in particular. I think there's some good stuff there. Uh, particularly, of course, the thing I I picked up on. Yeah, green is always used as the the sort of erasure of identity even from the very first episode uh the horde even on etheria loves green light they 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 just can't get enough of it um it's it's pretty good it is pretty good i will definitely be looking at those in details because that's that's like that's some pretty cool like deep level analysis like this is way deeper than anything we've gone in in this show frankly so that's yeah. that's you know kudos to that yeah, so i will definitely check that be out go to shiraidentity.wordpress.com if you want to read through all that stuff i know i will oh yeah for sure we'll like i'll i'll throw a link up to this in the uh and like either the twitter or like on the like actual episode description itself uh but yeah so uh, the actual question here is, uh, I've come up with this idea around Catra's heterochromia in particular. Um, <laughs> literally the only hetero in this show, right? Yeah, pretty Aha. much. Uh, where the scenes where only one eye is visible are correspondent with the meaning behind each eye color. Um, feel free to add your thoughts, but generally, uh, the blue eye um, is representative of emotionally open uh you know being open um uh power sort of the the inner child uh, vulnerability uh ambition and motivation whereas the amber eye is sort of uh, self-monitoring uh keeping control sort of suppressing that vulnerability and being like generally safe insofar as sort of Catra's idea of what safe means um, for most of the show. Um, for now, example. Now, before we go on, I will say one thing about that. The eye that is uncorrupted in the portal episodes is the yellow eye. Ooh. The blue eye is the one that has become all messed up. That's interesting, actually. That would be actually quite supportive of this idea. Because... Then, when, I, when I when you were saying that, I immediately thought, which one is the eye that is like blacked out in that in that form, and it was the blue one. Yeah, exactly. Because if you think about it, if that's if that's the case, right? If the blue eye is supposed to be sort of a visual representation of her vulnerability and her emotional openness and that sort of thing, um, that being sort of corrupted and uh, subsumed by the like portal glitching um would would track with the way that sort of catcher was acting and behaving while under the influence of of those those glitches but uh but they continue uh, for example 
There is a scene in season four where her amber eye is twitching in response to Scorpia. It's her suppressive side struggling not to unleash her rage, but I think it's most apparent in the Portal episodes. Ah, ah see, uh, they 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 beat you to it here, Nero. They they had this on lock before. Cor- corrupted Catra's blue eye is completely overtaken. I think this represents Catra's suppressive side having attempted to destroy her vulnerability to the point of self-destruction. A logical conclusion to the fact that we cannot deny our emotions without eventually destroying ourselves. Huh. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, basically that's like, that's, that really it's nail on the head. That's like, I, I think that's definitely true. I think that's like, that's a really, I think that's a very cohesive, like read on sort of the, the visual metaphors there. Yeah, I never really thought about Catra's eye symbology while we were uh, watching the show. It's something I must, I, I must have slipped my mind. I, I, you know, when you have a character heterochromia, either it means something or it looks cool. And sometimes it's both. In this case, I think it's both. I think that, yes. I, listen, blue and amber is like a good color combination, just generally. Um, uh, and then it uh, finishes out here uh, with them saying, uh, Catra's journey eventually culminates in her having to learn to integrate these parts of herself. She cannot deny her past, but also cannot suppress her emotions anymore. I reckon this is nicely represented with Milok, who exhibits a warm, cold color scheme to match Catra's eyes and helps Catra to understand and express her emotions better. That's also interesting, actually. Uh, Milog doesn't really take the same color palette, but uh, Milog does have that sort of hard like divide between uh, a warm and a cold color like that. So that's that that is interesting. That's like a nice sort of sort of match to uh to to that sort of visual theming yes this next section here is horrifying and something i believe we brought up in uh save the princess um okay i'm excited (laughs) and and i'm i'm afraid and excited why adora is such a dumbass i'm not sure if you touched on this it's on my own theory it's inspired by many fic on ao3 that's my heck that the reason adora is so unbelievably stupid now let's she's only a little bit dumb she's not unbelievably stupid she's not seahawk no, no, Sea Seahawk. She's not Seahawk. All right, no, Adora is, and we, we've said before, Adora isn't dumb. She's actually quite smart. She's just extremely, unbelievably dense and totally out of touch with her own emotions. And why she's so naive right up until she finds the sword is because Shadow Weaver actually did use her brain wiping magic on her before, repeatedly. This is Ooh. something we brought up when this is when this is brought up as a thing Shadow Weaver can do in that episode. I think the first thing both of us thought is, has this happened before? Yeah, the fact that she's so willing to pull it out, like just like immediately, she, casually, it just feel it, it feels routine at this point. And you know, yeah. So I mean, it makes sense. This is her protege. Shadow Weaver would not want Adora to have even one iota of doubt about her future as leader of the Horde. So anytime anything happened that would cause Adora to think differently, Shadow Beaver would just wipe it clean. I imagine this is why Catra has just a bit more savvy and insight about the world, whereas Adora doesn't even know what an aunt is. Okay, I did forget about that. I did forget about that too, yeah. She does not know what an aunt is. I don't uh, this second part, I I also think this might be why Adora is so blind to Shadow was so blind to Shadow Beaver's cruelty. Catra accuses Adora of never protecting her, and maybe Adora just 
doesn't have any memories of the terrible things Shadow did to Catcher. So for Adora, each time she saw Catcher being punished, it was the first. It was like the first time, so she wouldn't really know what to do. Pretty sure the scary thought. <laughs> but the first bit I can definitely see happening. Like Adora is very dense. This is true. I have a hard time believing she's as dense as she is in the first episode. I think that this is a good. A uh, scary explanation for why she is, has so little knowledge about the world outside, whereas Katra has already become jaded. Yeah, right? Like, because, I mean, so... there There is, like, a discrepancy. Like, we learn over the show that Adora is, like, sort of uniquely sheltered in that way. She's sort of uniquely, like lacking just basic knowledge of the world around her uh outside of her little bubble um like she didn't know like it's it's brought up that like you know Katra and the cadets and everybody would sneak in contraband food and they ate food that was not protein cubes like they 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 knew about food Adora didn't she had no idea what food was um she didn't know what an aunt was like like all of this sort of stuff like parties she had no idea what a party was but you know clearly everyone else in the horde knew what a party was they just they didn't have them like typically but like they knew them i think that rather than the drastic action shadow beaver was about to take and save the princess uh, which was clearly like at, th- at that point, Adora just knew far too much, and so we just had to really, really get in there and pull all of it out. I think what would have sufficed was just nudges, was just like so because that's Shadow Weaver's style. She is much more about with Adora, at least. She is much more about the subtle manipulation. She is about you know if, if any conflicting thoughts entered her head, it would be easy enough to just sort of vaguely direct it away, just like. Even maybe without memory manipulating magic, but this is Shadow Weaver we're talking about. She would absolutely do that. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like like the idea of Shadow Weaver doing that, I think, is a possibility. I don't, I don't know that she ever necessarily would. Like, it's it's possible she did, um, but I think it is also equally possible that Adora just led an extraordinarily sheltered upbringing in the Horde. Because, I mean, I mean, sheltered in a really specific way of saying it. Like, she wasn't coddled, certainly. Like, she was still very much the subject of a lot of very bad things. But she was, like, being Shadow Weaver's, like, direct protege for basically her whole life sort of puts her in this position where Shadow Weaver probably, like, spent a lot of time kind of keeping her as isolated as possible from anything that might sow seeds of doubt in her head. This this ties into uh, The Fire Never Goes Out, right? We know that Noel Stevenson has a fundamentalist Christian background, right? Mm-hmm. And people in that background grew up very sheltered. Adore, we, we already know that they have spoken in the past about how Shadow Weaver is sort of meant to be this kind of metaphor for homophobia in the family and whatnot not the structural kind but like the the more insidious kind the more personal kind now as soon as adora gets out of the fright zone 
she arrives in the big sparkly gay rainbow kingdom of bright moon and i think that i think that was on i feel like that was on purpose or if it wasn't on purpose uh, it certainly is a bit of noel bleeding in there right a little bit i think it was pretty on purpose it's it's pretty it's pretty pointed imagery right this idea of like you like adora is this like extremely sheltered individual who is brought up in this environment in which basically the um you have this extremely paternalistic figure who is the head of this big uh, family unit who you that never all, see who you never see and then you have this extremely manipulative controlling mother figure who like like really personally like like manipulates and like uh keeps information from you that doesn't directly benefit like the things that she wants you to 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 think and behave and obviously you're she indoctrinated like, your whole life to fight against an insidious enemy in this case the princesses you know the, in the very first episode we see that the horde training simulations personify princesses as like evil demon ladies yeah exactly which isn't i mean realistically is not that far off from what actual evangelicals tell you that gay people are like like Mm -hmm. i mean at this point they straight up just call us demons so it's really not that far off but it really isn't yeah I, i i i think that this whole thing is like yeah absolutely um and yeah probably there was a bit of brain manipulation in there somewhere it could be could be shadow weaver uh has her fingers in a lot of pies and some of those pies are brains that's true uh and then uh they had one more thought uh which is in heart part one Bo says when we get back it will be a whole new world shira then hears katra's laugh like shira's subconscious immediately thinks of katra when she thinks about the world because katra is her world yeah, we we talked about this a little bit in the actual episode itself. It's pretty good. It's excellent. Like the that whole thing, the 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 future vision where they're married, the beautiful wish. It's it's all so good. Uh, it's amazing. It's 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 really quality television. That's that's like those those scenes i think i think they get overlooked i think this scene specifically the the it'll be a whole new world line followed by that sort of like adora immediately dropping everything forgetting what she was even doing basically and immediately running after catcher's voice like i I feel like that scene is is really not just her voice not just her voice catcher's laugh a genuinely happy carefree laugh which is not a sound i i don't think catra has made in a very very long time oh yeah and and like like this is a this is like a tent pole scene this is a really important bit of of the show and like i said we talked about it a bit before but like the 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 thing that makes this scene i think so crucial is that it is like this extreme mirror effects this this like this this fracture this is like the moment where this fracture in like adora's spirit is like the most 
visually distinct, the most obvious on the screen, I think, where you have this, like, almost instinctual level of response to hearing Catcher's laugh, this, like, her her entire facade of, like, duty just sort of immediately gets thrown on the ground and as soon as the the sort of visions of Katra go away she picks them back up again and and tries to tries to put them on as best she can and there's this but it, but she can't put it back on all the way it's you know it's it's immediately after she walks away the uh, her shira form begins to flicker it does this is this is like it's like the biggest fracture in sort of her psyche that we've seen in the show up to that point. And it on, the cracks only spider out further from there. It's, it's a really, 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 really important scene. Uh, so, yeah, that was all from Felix. Thank you for the lovely, long email, real meaty. Yes, big, very, uh, very meaty, very good email. Oh, they did say one last thing, though. Fun fact stalagmites are the ground ones and stalactites are on the ceiling which is i think the opposite of what we thought in that one episode yes i was listening to a podcast and they were like you you can remember because the shape they make the ones on the ground make an m the ones on the ceiling make a t yeah exactly so there we go there you go um so the next one here is is a short one from jennifer uh about the 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 beautiful wish scene uh, in the future scene, Bo is wearing one of Angela's earrings. Catra is wearing Adora's winged rebel clasp. Is this a hint that both couples are engaged? Yes. Oh, extremely. That's like, uh, we've, we've mentioned this before a few times, but if you didn't know, um, one of the sort of things that uh, I, I believe Noelle added, uh, I don't know if it was Noelle specifically, I think it was them, but... Um, I think it was them, yeah. But yeah, there there was like back when sort of the show was in its early development and it was like really unclear just how much they were going to be able to get away with um with with the network and with the producers and everything um insofar as like making it gay. Um there was a a thing that sort of a lore bit that they came up with which was like um, and Ethereum sort of wedding tradition is that you exchange um, like a, a sort of symbolic piece of like jewelry or outerwear um, that that is like uh, part of sort of your core outfit and you exchange that little piece. So for example, with uh, Natasa and Spinarella, which is where we see this first, I believe uh, Spinarella has, uh, sort of a silver and blue necklace, and I'm not sure what Natasa has. Natasa has these like pink uh, bands around her neck. Right, right, right. Yeah, so they like exchange necklaces. So you can you can see that on them, and that's like supposed to be sort of like like having wedding rings, but you know like they they weren't really sure what they'd be able to get away with. So that was like the closest they could get. So. This is this is a callback to that, right? Like them wearing each other's like little bits of their sort of outfit is like an engagement or like a wedding 
style style thing. It's like a wedding ring for them. So so yeah, definitely I think that's exactly what that's supposed to mean. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take this next one from Char here, which is all about heart part one and two. Mm-hmm. Been saving the big guns slash questions and statements till now. That's a wise decision. Very um, wise. So number one, I love that Shadow Weaver was just getting drunk at the end of the world instead of helping is so hilarious, but it's frustrating because that's just how she is. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is just how she is. It is just how she, I mean, listen, if you're Shadow Weaver, and you, I mean, to be fair, like, in her extremely, extremely, extremely mild defense, the weakest defense imaginable, probably nobody wanted her help. Like, she was no. probably offering to help, and they just didn't want to deal with her. Because bear in mind, this happens, like, basically immediately after the whole, hey, you didn't tell us you were going to kill Adora thing. This is also, also right after Adora just, like, chews her head off after Catra leaves. Just, like, just, like, it's like, I never, you never, I never want you near me again. All you do is make sure that no one can ever be happy. I'm going to do this thing, but I'm not going to do it for you. Oh, so, yeah. Like, and that was a loud conversation, too. I bet you everybody yes. in that cave heard that exchange, too. Yeah, and, yeah, so Shadow Weaver has basically been uh, rightfully abandoned by everyone in her life. So, yeah, I guess it makes sense that she's just sitting alone in the Rebellion base getting turned. Yeah, she's just like, well, either the whole world explodes or nothing happens. Either way, I'm getting sloshed. And you know what? If I was in that position, I guess I would, too. Yeah, like, it makes sense. It makes sense in a lot of ways. Number two, uh, this is the thing we talked about a lot in that finale episode. A lot of people watching Shadow Weaver's death uh, think that it, uh, she is forgiven, but it is, in no, it is in no way an indication of her forgiveness. Adora literally says at the end of Failsafe that she will never forgive her. I think that's what they mistake the crying for, but that's just pure grief. Catra and Adora still both hate her, but uh, throughout the series it has shown that they can't help but to care for her. Abusers do that to you. Uh, they get you to love them even though you hate them. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, I think the nuance in it is very interesting. I think that like, and we've talked about this on the show a few times, there, there's definitely like, there is a reading that you could take, um, feeling like Shadow Weaver sort of gets left off the hook, or like she like is redeemed in some way. And I don't I don't think that that's that, that that's true. I think that Shadow Weaver is very much somebody who never really gets forgiven for the things that she's done. Um but even then, despite everything, she still does make the ultimate sacrifice for Adora and Katra, and that is it's 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 conflicting, right? It's it's a very conflicting moment for all of them because, you know, despite how Shadow Weaver is, despite all of the harm that she's caused both them and everybody else, like there's there's a layer of like familiarity and bond and and care that that there is like shadow weaver i think 
for for all that she does and has done in in sort of the chronology of the show she like does actually care about the two of them you know like and and i think that sort of a lot of that is revealed in that sacrifice scene that she she makes where she of course takes the mask off all the way and and sort of reveals her sort of true like sense of of self like like who she actually is and important to note when she she shows who she actually is despite the fact that in that moment she tells Katra that she cares about her that she really really does like want the best for them she's still an asshole she's still like oh you're welcome yeah no it's just just a, a real piece of work right to the end yeah like I, and i think that's that's like one of the most important things right is that like even that her her true nature her true self everything she really is on the inside that that brief moment that we actually see it it is still even though she's doing the most good she's ever done and saying the nicest thing she's ever said to these characters she is still a total bitch and that's and that's that's like yeah like that's the thing it's it's there's not like forgiveness on the part of Adora Katra and not on the part of the show. Shadow Weaver is held accountable for what she did. She's not like being put on trial, but she is like definitively like in in this scene and the scenes leading up to it and the episodes leading up to it, she is definitively called out. She is she is like the things that she's done wrong and what is wrong with her as a person is laid out in front of her by like eight different people. Literally every, like the failsafe is just a parade of people telling her she sucks. Um, (laughs) I think that, I think I said this in the finale episode, but like those tears aren't forgiveness or grief. It, It is grief, but it's also catharsis. It's like, this is, I mean, she, Literally, she burns herself out of their lives. Like, not a trace is left. Exactly, um, exactly. Cl- you know, cleansing fire as a metaphor is a big thing. So, like, yeah, like, just nothing remains. And that's, it's a big thing. It, it, it is not forgiveness. It is not redemption. It is catharsis. Exactly, exactly. Um, Third thing here. People often debate over when Adora realized she was in love with Catra, and I believe it is in the hollow Catra room. Just the way she reacts to her being there, uh, even though after the first glitch it's obviously a simulation, she is still so drawn in by it. I also believe that it would have been her wish before her wish for the future, which uh, really just makes more sense to me. Yeah, I think that tracks. I think that tracks. Like, that, I think... Like, Adora's conscious mind like her her like full layer of realization i don't think it kicks in until literally katra calls her an idiot uh after uh the the uh the kiss like i i I, like i don't think she actually realizes it until that exact moment yeah, before the kiss when Catcher chuckles, you're such an idiot. And then, yeah, that's when Adora realizes and she says, I love you too. Of course, we talked about this scene for like 
40 minutes <laughs> yeah that's ugh, what a what a scene um but yeah no that i think that scene is like her accepting that like that is that is her deepest wish for the future that that is what she's fighting for whether she wants to admit it or not exactly like that's Um, that's that's her that is her brain realizing it before the rest of her brain realizes it that is like every single paper mache barrier between her and the truth has been ripped down but one and it is very like it this is this is a rice paper screen you can see on the other side of it very easily yeah and this sort of thing here is just not really a question but adora shipped glimbo before she even knew they confessed and honestly i find that incredibly funny it's pretty funny uh, not as funny as all of the times Glimmer and Bo share awkward glances whenever Catcher and Adora are being extremely gay. Oh my god, it's so amazing. Like, like Bo just sort of, like, not having a reaction, and Glimmer basically always just looking so tired. It's <laughs> the funniest like, thing in the world. There's that one, there's the one when she's healing Catcher on the ship when they both share that glance. Uh, the one I always like is on Critus when Catra and Adora are just laughing after she takes off the helmet and they're, <laughs> they're the only ones laughing and Bo and Glimmer just once again glance at each other and then just walk away. Yeah, they're both like giggling for just a little bit too long and there's like that moment of extended pause where they're both just staring at each other and blushing lightly and the mm. other two are just standing there like, mm, uh, What's going on here? They're like, eh, can we, I mean, this is cute and all. Let's, let's, let's move. Let's move on. Let's move on. Let's move. Okay, <laughs> let's move on. Just, oh uh, god, just if like that's how they are before they're actually in a relationship. Can you imagine how sickeningly sweet they are to each other after? Oh my god! Literally, there is a scene. I can't remember which one it is that I keep saying this about, but there is a scene where Glimmer just ex- has this look that she exchanges with Bo, where she is just like. This is going to be the rest of my life, this, isn't it's, it? It's uh, it's right after Catra saves her from the fire. Is her like looking incredibly tired? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely that's definitely it. It's just like this incredibly tired. Like this is this is just the re- this is forever now, huh? And it is. I it like is. <laughs> times a thousand times you, a you million have no idea. million million. Like yeah. All right. So let's see. We got another one here. Yeah. Oh, one one last thing I do find this really funny is uh, I I don't know why I just everyone's got like fun fun little pictures for their their gmails and uh, Charles is like a very fat little bird and it's great. Yeah, I do love a fat bird. Gotta love it. So this one from Jennifer, just a couple of good videos that I'll link later. Uh, we'll link those in the description. I'm just I'm just watching them and it's just this first one is just uh. Is titled "How much does Adora want Catcher?" Obviously, going after that li- a line from Heart Part One, and it's just a it's just a huge a montage of all the times Adora yells Catcher's name or talks about how it's <laughs> always in her head. Or... It's really good. I'm looking at it. It's really, really good. Oh my god! Yeah, this is this is great. Yeah, so, we will know, extremely, yeah. extremely link these. That's amazing. Thank you very much. And the second one is similar, but it's all the time. You know, Catra is always assuring Adora that it's not because she likes well, it's her. It's not like um, I like you or anything. Which is 
maybe one of the funniest things she ever says in the show. And it's this, so you know, similar montages all the time. She proves herself wrong. Uh God, it's uh, Katra is such a funny character. Just uh, ultimate denial level, uh, just maximum about everything. Just let's see extreme, extreme, extreme. Um, How about you take this one from Turner? Yes, we have another one from Turner. Turner, and this was this was very recent. It was like five days ago. Uh, and they say hello. Uh, wrote a long, complicated question before, so let's uh, let's ask three shorter ones. All right. So so number one was listening to your episode on failsafe, and two scenes you focused on seemed to play off of one another. I won't rehash everything you said, but specifically, do you think spooking Katra was a deliberate part of Shadow Weaver's plan to A, discredit Katra in front of Adora, and B, impose a time crunch later? I don't think it was conscious. I think that was truly an accident. Like, I'm not sure she she operates on, like, seventh dimensional chess like that. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I do think it was definitely an accident. Like, when... I, I think it was just, like, Katra just happens to be a little bit too bold in a situation and a little too loud, and Shadow Weaver was trying to, like, maintain, like, operational integrity and that sort of thing, and she just sort of acted the way that she, like would as you know she would have like in the past right like i imagine that her just sort of grabbing catcher like that has definitely happened more than a couple of times um in in their history so you know she just sort of does it and you know catra is not in a position to be taking that kind of stuff anymore, so she just immediately sort of explodes. I definitely don't think that that was, like, like an intentional thing. That being said, definitely convenient that it happened, being that she could use it to, of course, discredit Catra later. Yeah. And, like, she is... You know, she's great at adapting uh, more than anything else. Yeah, very resourceful lady, for for better or for worse. Mostly for worse. Yes. Uh, number two here is something we've actually talked about. Do you plan on covering the Kevin Smith He-Man reboot? I watched the first five episodes. They are, quite frankly, not as good, but potentially instructive as a point of comparison, especially in terms of pacing, emotional stakes, and queer leads. Maybe. Maybe, um, yeah. We have talked about it. I obviously neither of us have any connection to the old filmation stuff at all. Um, we have an entire segment on our Patreon where we mock it, but I think it would be a constructive an, an instructive point of comparison, honestly, because I think that there are comparisons to be made uh, and 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 things to be said about the two visions of what a reboot means and the the vision a creator has of a property and what it and what they do with it when handed the keys 
Yeah, I, I I think that that's true. Maybe we'll make it a uh, maybe we'll make it a stretch goal. I don't know. Yeah, we might make it like a mini series or something. Because here's the thing: I I watched a few episodes of it actually, like I think like a week, two weeks ago, maybe like a month. It's time's not real, but some amount of time ago, recently, I watched the first handful of episodes and. I wasn't really impressed either, honestly. It's, like, it is not the kind of thing that I think would grip me enough to, like, actually do, like, like a deep analysis of. I don't think there's a, enough material to do that. It's, yeah, I, I do think, though, as a point of comparison and as, like, a way to talk about sort of what made She-Ra work so well... And what makes the He-Man reboot kind of fall apart. I, I think that actually be a really cool episode to do. Just talking yeah. about that. Because I think I, I do have like some sort of... I do have thoughts on why the Kevin Smith He-Man show doesn't work very well for me. I, I, I think definitely part of it is the fact that like they sort of commit what I would consider to be like a fairly cardinal sin of of doing this where like Shira specifically um sort of rewrites the canon sort of starts from square one and reintroduces all these concepts and like makes a new world for it whereas the he-man show is kind of a like pretty much a direct sequel it's not really a reboot at all it's like a a straight sequel and it like immediately opens up in such a way as that it is actually quite hard to follow if you aren't at least a little bit familiar with the characters that are in play. Like there were a few characters that sort of appear and then immediately go away <laughs> that you're supposed to have an emotional reaction about and I have never heard of them before in my whole life. Yeah, it seems like it's it's maybe a thing more geared towards He-Man fans, which is very funny because there's a subset of He-Man fans who were very excited when this was announced who are now extremely mad at it. Yeah, and the um, reason they're extremely mad, spoilers if you care, but uh, the reason they're really mad is because literally in the first like 45 minutes of the show, they kill both He-Man and Skeletor. And it's about women. It's about women. How da how dare you, Kevin Smith? How could yeah, you? Yeah, that's obviously like a like an extremely minor culture warrior jackass subset of the already probably fairly small He Man like big super fan culture. Yeah, exactly. It's I don't know. It's the kind of thing. Like I think we will definitely probably do like a show about it like not a show yeah. show but like you know an episode of something about it where we just sort of talk about both of them um there's there are, there is not a lot of like deep nitty-gritty to get into i can promise you that at least from what i've seen so far maybe there's like some secret content buried deeper in gotta find the secret content and number three here uh can you download Patreon-only episodes for offline listening? I listen to a lot of podcasts at work, but we don't have Wi-Fi, so I have to download episodes overnight to listen to during the day. I haven't signed up for the Patreon yet, but I'm definitely interested in the Keep on Owl House episodes as well as your actual PlayStation. Well, the actual PlayStation will be going on the main feed, 
however, you can indeed download files direct from Patreon. I do it all the time uh, for, for Patreon podcasts I, I listen to. So, yeah, you can just, uh, if you join, you can just put them directly onto your phone. Uh, there's also an app, I believe, but the R- the Patreon RSS stuff is all very finicky. It is. Patreon is like, uh, we've said this before, but like sort of the Patreon API and the way that they handle stuff is just like, it is the best website for what it does that I've seen. However, and it's a very big however. Uh, it's terrible at literally everything else. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, if you want to get a bunch of people to, you know, pay you a couple bucks a month so that you can make things, then it does that pretty okay. Everything else, it is... Even uploading the content is sometimes kind of a hassle, so... <laughs> yes. And as, as a reminder, speaking of that content, we will, uh, after this episode goes up, uh, we will be going on a weekly schedule with those sideshows until we are caught up on them. Um, yes, indeed. And uh, every and all the other bonus content, everything else is just going to be going up basically the second it's finished. And it's like the next few months is just going to be the Patreon is just going to get flooded with like 80 different things. So, uh, so, you know, look forward to that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we will uh, talk about that more as we, we get closer to that, as we start gearing up for that. Um, let's see. Let, what's next here? Oh, Michael Woodward here. Yes. Um, so let's see. They say, hi, Nero and Jane. I've spent the summer catching up on every podcast. Now that I finally have, I feel like I can send a few of my questions in. Well, let's, let's um, hear them. Number one, uh, in Save the Cat during Catra and Adora's fight, Adora punches Catra in the jaw and then immediately makes a horrified and regretful face afterwards. This is a callback to Portal where Adora does the same thing after telling Catra to live with it. Do you think Adora felt deep regret for doing that after reflecting on it? I'm I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts on that. That's interesting. I haven't, like, um... I didn't think about that parallel, but that's definitely there, actually. There's, that, that is, like, Mm -hmm. that I think is actually a callback yes um i think that it's like yeah i I think it might be a callback i also think that you know she doesn't really want to hurt catcher in this state um and fighting her at all is just something she just hates doing at that point um yeah yeah I, i did forget about the like the 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 mean right hook she gives corrupted Katra. Um, I believe she also has like a like a very sad look on her face when she falls into the portal. Um, she does. There's there's Adora hates to hurt Katra. There's like yes. sort of an unspoken rule of engagement when the two of them are fighting, at least on Adora's side. That you know you want to sort of pin her down but there's not really any interest in like you know capital h hurting her or anything like that at least for most of the show though you know parts of season four notwithstanding that's why they never interacted because i feel like adora would be just be really ready to go ham um like that's why they never had a fight scene in season four yeah because it would have been like pretty I don't think I don't think Catcher would have done well in that fight, frankly. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think I think definitely Adora has a lot of like deep regret after afterwards of of it. Like, I 
I guess deep regret is maybe a bad way of framing it because I think it's like, I don't think she regrets having done it, but I think that she regrets, she's, she's sad about having to have needed to do it, you know? Yeah, she's like, she's basically mourning the loss of Catra is the thing, right? Because that seeing scene is basically like she is cutting the tie. She is like laying Catra out, forcing her to face the facts. And throughout season four, she's basically like, yeah, the one interaction they have is very cold. Um, because at that point, Adora is like, she feels as though there's nothing to be done anymore. Like Catra is too far gone. But as soon as she gets that call on the ship, right? Um, in corridors and she hears Catra, she like instantly knows that something is very wrong and she instantly knows that she was wrong that she was never too far gone um and now she might not get the chance to tell her that exactly exactly and during save the cat i think that if there is if there is a moment where adora punching katra creates like a feeling of deep horrible regret it is probably that that uh that sock to the jaw that she gives her during save the cat i think that like Adora is doing her best in that fight to do as little damage as possible, perhaps more so than she ever has in any fight before it. Because um, she has had the kid gloves on for the vast majority of the show, but they, are, they have never been more on than in that fight. Because on top of everything else, Catra is like not even in control of her actions. So like that dynamic of Katra actually trying to inflict harm and Adora refusing to is amplified to like its absolute maximum in that fight, which is just a real angst factory if you think about it. That's why we love it. That's why we love so, it. So the second one here uh, is about failsafe. In failsafe, when the group walks through the illusory fire, Adora stays behind, pauses for a second, and gets an anguished look on her face. After balling her fist for a second, she then walks through. I haven't been able to figure out why she does this. Thoughts? Uh, it might be real fire. Who knows with wizards? Oh, okay. I, I know exactly what scene you're talking about. So this is this. Uh, so he's talking about the very, very, very end. This was after Adora accepted the failsafe and Katra looks at uh, the failsafe sort of sigil on oh. Adora's chest. And then she gets those tears in her eyes and runs off. And then Adora just looks like very upset and then sort of steals herself and, and, and then leaves before, um, you know, just before she uh, she sort of collapses the, the doorway to the room. That, that anguished look on her face. So that's like, she just grabbed the failsafe. She's, she saved the day. She saved everybody from Micah and the other wizards and she's she's helping catch her up and she's like all right let's go let's let's get out of here everybody let's go gang and she's expecting this moment to be kind of triumphant like she's expecting Katra to like to to grab her hand and go with her and you know maybe even like be proud of of the sacrifice she's willing to do but she isn't. Katra is feels betrayed and horrified and angry 
with her. She's Catra is mad. And this is like the exact opposite of the reaction that Adora was expecting. And it's something that she not only is she not equipped to reconcile that at that moment, but she also doesn't have time. So when she she balls her fist and then sort of steals herself and then leaves, that's her kind of like taking this moment of like extreme emotional turmoil and confusion and just sort of putting it in a little box and just putting that box up on the shelf very precariously, like I'll deal with you later. Which uh, I'm sure will go well and will not, the box won't just completely tumble over at the end of the episode, no sorry. Oh yeah, it definitely won't. Um, yeah, I think that fits. I think there was another scene where she hesitates before going through fire. I think that one, though, was that hesitation is her looking at her the wristband that she uh, has on her arm, I believe. Um, or, like, just her hands. Because that's when Shadow Weaver walks up to her and is like, yeah, you can't become She-Ra, huh? Um, there, were, there are, like, two moments of hesitation. So there, there, there are a few moments where she hesitates before walking through fire. Yeah, that's um, that's true. To be fair, I would also hesitate before walking through fire, but that's mostly because I don't want to be on fire. Yeah, the most most of it is illusory, some of it is real. I hate wizards. Anyway, <laughs> third one. This one, last one, isn't about any particular episode, but how do you two handle the post-series depression when you finish the show or rewatch it? Is it just me? Well, we made a podcast. <laughs> yeah, we that that's how we dealt with it. We made You're an listening entire... to the result of that. Yeah, lit- literally, that is why we made it. We talked about it, like, kind of before, like, two whole hours ago. But, like, um, yeah, like, we, we had that, like, post-series, like, we gotta talk about it. We gotta just... We gotta keep talking about it. We ca- we gotta keep that flame alive, baby. And then we made a whole we made a whole show. So I mean, hey, if you have a if you have a show that you love this much, then yeah, make a podcast about it. Go for it. Mm-hmm. And why don't you take our final email here? Yes, absolutely. It's our very very last one here uh, from Katie. Uh, and uh, and they say uh, say no need to answer this on a pod because it's super late. Well, guess what? Not too late. We're we're answering it. We uh this this episode. Listen, we 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 try to time it so there's there's enough time that we'll we'll get like some of the last minute questions in right before recording. I'm doing a rewatch right now, and I think season three, episode six, the portal hints that the reason Raz lives in between Mara and Adora's time is because she was the one to turn off the portal the first time. In this episode, Entrapta tells Adora that the only way to turn off the portal is from the inside, and that whoever does it will be trapped between realities forever, which is kind of the reality that Raz lives in. And this would explain why Raz knows that Adora still has time to fix the portal and save everyone. If that's true, maybe Angela still exists between realities and will be kind of like Raz. She'll be confused about realities, but maybe Glimmer and Micah will get to see her again would be something fun for a future movie or comic huh that is that is a another 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 raz based theory as we said this character is just a theory vector i like that one more honestly i think that one could bear a lot of fruit uh both thematically and just sort of as a plot for a movie right oh yeah for sure i i really like the idea of like raz being the person who turns the portal off from the inside and that being why she like sort of is in the portal reality so much and is like 
like knowledgeable of it like knowing that you know there's still time to fix it and all this stuff and like knows what's happening just sort of innately like like yeah. i i think that makes sense actually yeah i think that totally does make sense like the i think the thing i most want from a post series movie or comic or whatever i think you know there's a few things obviously we've talked about i want some scorfuma content i want to see we, we talked about wanting to see Hordak like trying to rebuild what he's destroyed. I want to deal. I want them to deal with Angela somehow, either trying to get her back, working through her loss, stuff like that. Like that is the big thing I want to see. Yeah. That's like, that's a big thing. That's a big thing. Like I really, really want to see them deal with sort of the consequences of the stuff that isn't, uh, that isn't dealt with in the show that there just isn't time for both chronologically and when the show is in production you know how does everyone deal with the fact that hordak is now like a person who lives around them how do they deal with the fact that he is like a better person but still responsible for all the things he did you know how do they deal with the fact that angela is gone or was gone you know how how do they deal with the fact that you know katra is at least at minimum partially responsible for her being lost maybe forever it's like how do you deal with these things how do you deal with these emotions because these are emotions that the show and the characters in the show don't have time to really consider but something like an additional like comic or movie or something would have the time and the like emotional space to be able to work with. And it, it would be really interesting, especially if like I, I think keeping Angela in the state of functional death, I think keeping Angela like in in a circumstance in which she, she is basically still dead um, is probably the most like thematically strong option that you can do. But at the same time, I think that it would be interesting if there was some way that that Glimmer and Katra like specifically could like interact with her in some way like talk to her um or or something just like a, a sort of final closure moment you know what i mean yeah because the one we got in the show sure was pretty underwhelming but yeah that's there's so many juicy bits you could dig into for post series stuff if, if they ever decide to do it like they don't have to obviously but i think it would be really nice it would be so nice i like i i really 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 hope that they get a chance to because i know for I, I i know for almost certain that the the people in production like noelle stevenson themselves and also like uh most of the other people on the staff um you know Ali and AJ, like, they, like, I think everybody would be pretty interested in, like, doing some follow-up content and, like, making some additional stuff. I, I think that, like, you know, they all had a pretty fun time working on this, and I think that if they had the opportunity to, they would definitely, like, like, super be jazzed for it. So hopefully yeah. they get the opportunity. Yeah, 
uh, I think, you know, and, and, you know, also like a big thing I would like out of those comics or movies, like we would get to see Adora and Catra being in a relationship. Those are like the best. That's the best bit of the Korra comics. Like the rest of those comics don't matter. I don't care about the plot of those Korra comics. The only thing that matters is that you get to see those two characters actually interacting as a couple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the other thing, too, is just, like, because the, the build-up, the, like, the 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 best the best part of, of the, you know, the sort of the, the long, you know, slow burn or whatever is, like, is the slow burn, right? It's the, it's the long build-up to that, that, that climactic moment where they actually become a couple, but it's the, it's the sort of them existing as a couple that introduces, like, this entirely new and interesting dynamic, and not only is it just, like, fun to see and really cute, but it's also, like, it adds new and interesting, like, like, uh, things to explore like different challenges different hurdles that sort of appear because you know there's like i i think even in a relationship like the one that catcher and adora have which i think is like i i feel like they're pretty close to what one might consider to be soulmates right yeah. um and i i think that's like it's pretty pretty clear like textually they've done they've already done all the hard parts at this point I, but there's still going to be bumps in the road like i still want to see like conflict between them even if it's not on an earth-shattering scale i think it would be nice to see them overcome that as a couple exactly exactly i think that that's like really like a cool thing to do like you you don't see a lot of that in media in general but like especially in like gay media it's very rare that you actually see people being like domestic and being a couple and like having that have been like their reality for a while it's like typically um the the vast majority of the time it is that build-up period uh that leads up into the climactic like now they are in a relationship moment and that's great and we love that but getting a little bit of that of that after period when when they are a married couple when they have like all of that going on like that's that's also really interesting and that's like a that's a dynamic you just very rarely get to see so i i would be so happy if if we could get to see some of that in the in the future i think the only one i can think of that's an actual animated continuation uh, of a relationship like that is uh adventure time distant lands obsidian um which is of course the bubbling uh kind of an ova i guess Ooh, i i haven't seen that i actually would oh i gotta watch that at some point i didn't know they did like just a straight up like bubbling ova that's like they did uh that's that's like the that's the original right there you know that's i uh, i i never got into adventure time i think i was maybe a bit too old when it started and also when it, the place it starts is very very different from the place it ends like i said at the beginning of the show oh yeah big time but like that makes me wish i would i i would like to watch all of adventure time at some point because it seems like such a wild ride and like an, a fascinating evolution of a show it is such a weird and like complicated web of a show it's like adventure time 
is the show that I think, and this is partially because of how long running it was, but I think it's a show that encapsulates every possible strength and every possible weakness of having a show be very loose and storyboard driven because you have like this extremely fluid narrative that evolves over time and all of these really unique interesting episodes that just couldn't exist in any other format but at the same time there's some real stinkers in there oh yeah like it's it's a very it's like there's hundreds of episodes it went for like seven years or something it's it's a long spanning thing but like the heights seem so high and the end result seems like such a cool singular thing that it's like i kind of want to experience all of it yeah hey i mean it's at some at some point we'll just sit down and watch that together and who knows maybe that'll be a like a, another podcast someday uh, keep keep maybe. your eyes peeled it depends on <laughs> depends on how it strikes us but you know <laughs> i think that'll bring us to the end of this ultra long podcast here yes uh you've already heard like all about all the stuff on our patreon if you haven't been able to find us on twitter yet i don't know i don't know how we're at podcast of power there's still going to be some activity over there yeah we'll still um, we'll still retweet some stuff we'll still talk about stuff you know if we're doing stuff on the patreon we'll you know shout it out and stuff like that and you know i'll i am also i've got my co-host gig on disney minus over at disney minus pod we uh, just talked about the country bears a pain i inflicted on all of us personally oh god uh, on a scale of one to ten how painful it's like a like a six the music is really bad (laughs) um the bears are horrifying but christopher walken is there and there were a couple of characters that were surprisingly extremely funny none of them were the bears the bears were insufferable Ah, the bears were insufferable. Especially the especially the little snot-nosed brat, Haley Joel Osment bear. Oh, God. I hate Barry. I want to punt him into the sun. <laughs> anyway, next up, the, uh, the random generator gave us uh, the movie that David Lynch made for Disney, The Straight Story. Oh, my God. About a man who drives a tractor across Iowa and Ohio. So that should be interesting. That's amazing. Um, what, what on earth could that movie be? I have no idea, but Harry Dean Stanton is the star of it, so it is probably pretty all right. All right. And of course, we should give one last audio shout out to all of our Force Captain patrons. Yeah, you know, we. Sh- I, I want to do. I want to do an audio shout out to every patron for this last one. Right. I want. I want everybody to get in on this. Yeah, you're right. I'm going to read everyone here. So thank you to both our cadets and our captains. Kayla Miller, Patricia Montez, Jenna, Daniel Fitch, Imogen Q, Link2345, Dana L, Maya Capasso, Alex Hulla, Kitty Sasson, Paul Robinson, Ludovica Peruzzi, Casey Cosmos, Zach, Jin B, Katie Sinclair, Chris, Remy Dillon, Salty Salty, Blue Holly, I Beauregard, Kaylee Louisa, Garrett Johnson, Ross Ivy, Emma Lynn, Ashley Butcher, Autumn Keys, Anelia, Cody, Haley Moreland, Yusuf Gurch, Ashley, Kyra Williams, Mabel Mabel, Ryan Coon, Jennifer Jones, Jess Pumphrey, Leon Lay, Sean Montgomery, 
Jack O'Neuro, Olivia, Brittany Ray, Michael Steiner, Tara Stark, TCO, Tobu, Emma Grossman, and Robert Harris. Thank you all so much. It's And those special shout out to those last two. I believe they have been patrons since the f- patreon first opened they i i'm pretty sure they have been so like extremely thank you uh to everybody like as i say every single time it means the world to us and i really do mean that it, it really does it's been it's been a crazy like year and a half that we've been putting this together it's wild it's it's, it's been a, it's been a whirlwind it's been a real roller coaster of a time and like you know i I wouldn't i wouldn't change it for the world this has been this has been a really really great experience and i'm and i'm really excited for for what we're going to be getting up to in the future like like we said we've got we got radio free heidelin coming up in the very near future that's going to be premiering basically after the new years you know once we've gotten settled Mm -hmm. in and played through all of uh end walker here but with a few little starter episodes scattered throughout we're gonna start populating that feed in the next couple of months with these preludes we're gonna be doing just to get everyone eased in because if you're planning on playing along with us it is a big commitment um oh yes but these preludes will kind of help you along that journey um and even if you're not playing along with us, I think it, 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 if, if you're if you're interested in hearing about this game that your friends won't shut up about, <laughs> um, I think it's it'll be worth your time. There's a lot of interesting stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. There's a lot of bad stuff. It's it's a truly a land of contrast. Final Fantasy XIV. It really is, and I, I think actually this like the our our sort of style of doing things is actually a pretty cool like in like it's a way to like get um. I think it would be like a cool way to get a sense of like the game. Like if you're unsure about it, you're like, yeah, I don't really know if this would be my thing. You know, we're going to try and do things in such a way as that we're like, um, you know, similar to how we've done for Shira. Like we'll have like more spoilery talk in like a specific section and then more like, uh, contiguous content in the, in the, the front section and we'll just try to like walk through all of the the, the various things that we do and, and you know hopefully that'll give everybody like a like a sense of of what it's like because because it's very different you know like saying oh hey you know check out this show versus like hey you know check out this you know like 700 hour video game you know it's, it's a little bit of a different commitment it's very dense and i think even and also even if you've already played it maybe listening to this will give you uh extra context on things that you haven't thought about in a while because as i said this is a story built on years and years of other stories like shadowbringers doesn't happen without arr heavensward and stormblood that's true like it's all foundation and endwalker doesn't happen without the rest of them it's remarkable but and also i should also say i don't want to officially announce it yet because we haven't actually recorded the first episode but i also have another project in the works Ooh, that's exciting if you're interested in hearing me talk about uh, another animated franchise uh perhaps also very toyetic perhaps involving robots that turn into other things perhaps Um, robots in disguise perhaps robots in disguise uh you should 
keep an eye out because uh, I've, I've got another thing coming up here soon because I just don't have enough podcasts. I need more. Just, just, just really hungry for all those podcasts. I, I am, I am the Mister Crease out of podcasts, and eventually I will explode. <laughs> I will, I will start one more podcast than I can handle. Uh, well, that's. I think that's actually going to do it for us this time, and and I guess for the last time for uh, for this very specific show. Yep. Uh, well, I have been one of your hosts nero and i've been the other host jane and thank you for joining us on this journey across podcast bondos